are in this um, kind of prolonged series that will be in all the way to the fall. So through the summer, we'll be in the Sermon on the Mount. And this is where we come today, Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 17. Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word. You can have a seat. So uh, I get to help parent two small humans and our, our just... Just parent. I just uh, help parent. Just parent. Okay, it was redundant there. Okay, what if it's my job? Thank you. Yeah. So I get to partner with Jessica in the parenting of these small humans. And one of the surprising things about parenting is uh, you read a lot of books that you didn't really opt in for. Uh, so, for example, when Griffin was younger, Llama Llama Red Pajama got a lot of play. Anybody on the Llama Llama Red Pajama train? No? Okay. There's uh, actually a great video. I, I can't recall which basketball team did it, but you can rap Llama Llama Red Pajama because it has Llama Llama Red... Yeah, you get it, right? So this is th- these stories start to kind of get into your imagination, and... I don't know if it was after the 11th or 12th or 20th time of reading Llama Llama Red Pajama, but I, I wanted Llama Llama to go away. And Jessica reminded me that, uh, that Griffin's trying to master this story. Like the, the redundance, what feels redundant to me is a part of him taking this in and learning to orient himself in the world. So he would read it again, read it again, read it again, and he's trying to master it. And I would know the themes, like I would know the flow of Lama Lama. But then what I found is he would start reading the book. He had the story memorized. It was, it was. Um, like, if you could just suspend eating and living, I think Griffin would just sit there and read the same book over and over and over again. And then, it was funny, we would, we would like, went over to Josh and Christy. You'll see Josh up here uh, leading us in worship through song. And, uh, and uh, there was a book that Griffin lit, just had memorized, a whole book. And he said, no, I, I read it. And he's, he's pointing at words that aren't the words that he's saying, but it's just it's just got deep down into his little body, and, and it just got me thinking about, have you considered the book that is open in front of you? Maybe it's on your phone, or I'm talking about the scriptures, like, have you considered it? What is open to you, the story that's in front of you? And I, more specifically, like, have you ever asked the question, like, what did we just read? And if we, if we think about it, I mean, we just read four verses from the Sermon on the Mount, which is a larger block of teaching, the first real block of teaching in the gospel according to Matthew. But the gospel according to Matthew is itself a rich tapestry of vignettes and, and scenes that 
tell a larger story about Jesus as the climax of the story of the people of Israel. And so Matthew's not just weaving together stories from Jesus, he's actually drawing on a larger collection of work called the Hebrew Bible, and he's situating the Jesus story into that. Like, have you thought about what's open in front of you? And just think about the, the breadth and the depth and the complexity and the beauty of the story of Jesus. I mean, so what you have in the standard Protestant New Testament and Old Testament, we'll call it, uh, is 66 books between the old and the new. And then it's not just books as we think about it. Uh, like if you think about, I don't know, Chronicles of Narnia or something where you're tracking this story and these characters and there's different plots and things, but it's moving along one, one piece. It's not even a book like that. There's so much more. There's poetry and prose and there's narrative, which is the story. There's erotic love poetry in the Bible. I mean, what, what's going on there? And then there's stuff that we don't even know what to do with anymore. It's a genre that, that we don't have called apocalyptic. So if you've ever gone to Daniel or Revelation and been like, what am I reading? Exactly. We don't know because we don't have that genre. So this, this is a story that is rich and deep. And as our friends at the Bible Project say, the Bible is a unified story that leads to and finds its fulfillment in Jesus of Nazareth. But that story is, is complex, is it not? Have, have any of you tried to like read through the Bible in a year um, and you get to Leviticus or you just get, you get to a genealogy and you're like, what? Um, chronicles in the Hebrew Bible is usually at the end, but for us, it's like right after all of the other stuff, and you get eight chapters of names. Like, what am I doing here? Why am I reading this? How is this shaping me into a person of love? I don't even, I can't pronounce these names. Well, this work, this story is where Jesus found himself. And, and the story of Jesus is itself what, what um, some would call like Jewish meditation literature, just something that you chew on. In fact, the word meditate, like when you see it in Psalm 1, uh, it's this idea of chewing on, just muttering it under your breath, just kind of mulling it over in your mind. This is, this is the story. It's as though we're invited like children to sit and allow it to shape our imaginations. And sometimes we're going to have the words, but we'll be tracking with it in a different way. But at some, at some point, it is to sync up. That is what Jesus is on about in this passage, about the story actually sinking up in his life. And so that's what we're going to do. We're just going to work our way through bit by bit in this passage to see how Jesus sees himself as the inflection point of the story of the people of God. How does that sound? Okay, so this is what we're going to do. Uh, just uh, go with me back to verse 17. Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And I just, we're going to get to the word like abolish and stuff like that in a moment. But pay attention to that opening line. Do not think I have come to do this. If you were to start a statement off, do not think I have come to do this, what's the underlying assumption just kind of lingering in the air? And the, and, and the church says, Oh, somebody does think Jesus is there to abolish it. Look at our communication is going so well this morning. So this is like how though, like how is it that when Jesus opens up his teaching in this spot, he says, do not think I have come to do this. Why is that assumption in the air? And it's helpful for us to think about what Jesus is saying and where he's saying it. You see, Jesus's words are, are connected 
to the context that they're in. It's really easy for us to take a line from the teaching of Jesus and hold on to it. And I think that's beautiful and helpful and encouraging. And it is possibly more beautiful and more helpful and more encouraging to see how that line of Jesus, maybe a, a, what we hold as wisdom, is connected to a larger story. And we see that. So uh, scroll down to verse 14 or up to verse 14. Because we see how the words that surround do not think I have come to abolish and form that assumption. Verse 14, we covered this last week. You are the light of the world. And then Jesus is going to give three uh, images or word images about being a city on a hill or a lamp on a lampstand or how our words can bring glory to God. And he said, you are the light of the world. Let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. And so when Jesus says these words... To, to the group of people around him, you are the light of the world. He is inviting his followers to embrace a sense of radical openness to the world. In some sense, it's this idea that they, they themselves are not responsible to turn on the light for other people, but rather it's that they've been given the designation of light. And so track this with me. Jesus is speaking identity over these people. It's almost as though Jesus is saying, this is now who you are. You are light. And because you are this, now do and be this. Just be who you are. And, and that doesn't mean that you are going up and like seek. I, I, this is just my opinion. I could be wrong about this. I don't think it's that you go and you move into places that are... Uh, I don't know, already lit and, and shine your light there or, sh or shine your light in the darkness. Yes, and kind of, but more it's this, I really think it's this idea of a door that is cracked where you can see the light coming into a dark room and the invitation to be light is to open the door wider. Let that light kind of cascade in and the idea is that this is who you are, so be light. And you might be wondering, okay, so how is this connected to Jesus say? saying, do not think I've come to abolish. Well, this is where we actually get um, to the assumption and to the tension because Jesus, who's speaking identity over his followers, is actually a, inviting people to, to be who he is as well because Jesus will say this in, a, in another gospel, in another biography of Jesus' life. He'll say this in John 8. I am the light of the world, and whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And so what Jesus is doing is he's connecting proximity to him, pursuit of his presence, to actually enjoying the light of life, which is living into the fullness that God has on offer. To say it another way, Jesus has essentially centered himself in the restoring story. And so I don't, I don't know what you think in this season. I, I find myself turning to the news headlines regularly, like more often than I normally would. Maybe the global conflict and everything is drawing me there. I don't know what I'm expecting to find when I go there, but this morning I saw, is Taiwan next? <laughs> and I just thought, I don't know, but that's a little nerve-wracking. I'm in Iowa. And all of a sudden, I'm feeling some sort of anxiety of something that's happening on the other side of the world, of, of humans that I'm not connected to, and yet because I'm human, I am connected to them. Jesus is offering a different way of being in the world. And he's not just saying, 
I alone carry this. He's given this designation of life over to those who are with him, that they are this. This is where the tension of this assumption comes in, because if now all of a sudden it's not just a few who have access to the resources to calm the storm of the world, but it's, it's the, the people of God, the people who are orienting themselves to love and neighbor, like all of a sudden this is where life is breaking out. That is threatening. So if there's a few holding on to power and Jesus is all of a sudden giving it away to people who aren't quote unquote qualified, that is threatening. This is where I'm, I'm imagining Jesus is saying, don't think I've come to, to do away with these things because I'm giving away power. No, there's something different happening. And we actually, we, we see this because if you jump to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, you'll see how people respond to Jesus. Check this out in the end of Matthew chapter 7, uh, verses 28 and 29. When Jesus had finished saying these things, this is his teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. And why were they amazed? Verse 29, because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. So not only is Jesus' aim different, but he also carries authority. There's a weightiness to what he's saying. And we see this then when we think of this word abolish. So look back at verse 17. See, when I hear the word abolish as an American living in 2022, my mind goes to the transatlantic slave trade. It goes to all of the like, atrocities that come with that. But there's a, like a, a tinge of hope when I think about that because abolish then is to entirely get rid of that. A, a, that definition would say to do away with that system, to put it out of practice. And yet Jesus is not a white guy living in 2022. Shocker, okay? No, there's, there's something different when Jesus is talking about abolition because abolition for Jesus was about obedience. To abolish something was... To, is a technical term where the law, which would be uh, the, the Torah or the teaching of God, you could use the term Torah or law to talk about the whole Old Testament. And so when Jesus is saying, I'm not here to do away, to abolish the law, the, the idea is about disrespecting. I'm, I'm not here to disown or disobey or disrespect the Torah. No, instead Jesus has a different aim. What does he say? It's right there after in verse 17. I have come not to abolish, not to do away with, but to fulfill. Which, can we just comment on that for a moment? Like, what an odd thing for Jesus to say. If, if abolition is about obedience or disobedience, what is the opposite of that? O obedience. So you would think the natural flow of that statement to my mind, would be something like, I've not come to do away with or disobey the law. I've come to obey the law. But Jesus says something more than that because his aim is different and he carries this authority. He says, I've come to bring it to its fulfillment. I've come to sync up what it means to actually be human and live with God and my neighbor. I've come to fulfill the law. And now Jesus is drawing his attention, our attention now to the goal of the Old Testament. So when you read all those names and chronicles, which if you do that, like, congratulations. I think I just go, right, I skip chapters 1 to 8. Um, no shame in that, I guess. But, maybe I'm, but what I'm missing is that there's a story from creator 
to the present moment that God has sustained his people to be a light to the nations, to be a place of hope and healing for the world, and that there has consistently been a spot of hope, and yet what you're left lingering with in Jesus's day is that hope has not been fulfilled. And so you're left with Jesus stepping into this hope and he's drawing on this attention, the attention, drawing our attention to the law and the prophets. And this really would sound odd if we think about the law as, as pertaining to the modern legal code. But remember, law is this word Torah. So this is going to be the first five books of your Old Testament. You could think about that collectively as Torah. And that's not to say that there weren't commands. There was, you know, we know the big ten but there were 603 other commands. That was about how the people of Israel were to do business with the creator God. And have any of you ever seen a no loitering sign? Okay, why did they put that there? There are probably some dubious ruffians out front of a convenience store. What were they doing? They were loitering. And so then the owners of that establishment, they put a sign up that says no loitering. This is essentially how the law develops with the people of Israel. They're loitering everywhere, except they're starting to take on the cultural practices of their neighbors, which is leading to death and the, the subjugation and oppression of people. So Jesus, excuse me, so God the Father is establishing a new way, and Jesus is stepping in to this hope of restoration. And by the way, um, how did the story of Israel go? Are we going to give a thumbs up or a thumbs down? Yeah. There's like some glimmers of hope, but most of the time when you, when you roll through that, you're left going, oh. It's like a, a roller coaster ride of disappointment. It does not go very well. The, the, the people who God has a desire for them to be a place of joy and love and rest and restoration, to show what it might like to be human again, there's more chaos. It's more destruction. But here's what the hope sounds like. It sounds like this. This is the prophet Jeremiah. And you may have seen this like stitched into a pillow or something, but let that image kind of stick with you in a new way. This is the prophet J Jeremiah. The days are coming, declares the Lord. When I will make a new covenant, that word covenant, this lasting agreement, this way of orienting, it's like a marriage. I will bind myself. There is a new way with the people of Israel coming and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand out of Egypt. This is the story of Exodus. This is a people who are enslaved and God leads them out of their enslavement into a place of life and rest and restoration. This new covenant will not be like that one because they broke my covenant. Though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord, this is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time. I will put my Torah, I will put my law in their minds. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the least to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. So the story that Jeremiah is tapping into is the story of God's desire to restore all things. And what we see here in this new covenant, this new way of being human, the way that it comes to bear is through that last line there. Look at this again. 
I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. See, when God comes to restore all things, he will do so in a move of great forgiveness. I don't think you can like read this passage without pausing to just ask like, what does that look like? I know that's not the trajectory of this passage and yet there's this moment where we just have to ask a question around forgiveness. Like, and for me, usually it comes with who am I, hold-? it's not a matter of have I, like who am I holding bitterness in my heart toward? What thing am I holding on to from yesterday or a week ago or years ago that's actually laying claim over these present moments that's haunting my present? Does anybody know what I'm talking about here? Maybe it was a thing that you did or a thing done to you, and yet there's something holding you. And then is there anybody who has actually gone, entered into the waters of forgiveness and experienced the refreshment that comes thereafter? This moment where you feel released from that. And the consequences, the anger, the frustration, those things are still there, and yet there's a new sense of freedom, like a lightness that happens. Or perhaps you have actually been forgiven. Like somebody comes to you and they forgive you. How do you, like what happens in, in the constitution of your inner woman or your inner man? Like what do you feel? Is there like a sense of gratitude that comes up? Usually I feel annoyed because then it calls me out on my stuff. But that's, that's mine, not in theirs. But there, there's something there. When Jeremiah is speaking on God's behalf to the people and saying there's a new way, it's going to be called forgiveness. Jesus is saying he's actually bringing this to bear on the world when he says, I've come to fulfill the law and the prophets. The hope of the prophets is right there. It's a new move of forgiveness. And Jesus is extending that. He's not come to do away with or disobey. He's actually come to bring forgiveness to bear. And to what end? Well, um, it, it's certainly not to get rid of all the non-Jesus-y parts of the Bible. <laughs> and that you can do this. This is an option. It's not a valid one in my opinion. But you can get rid of all of the non-Jesus-y parts. You can get rid of the Old Testament. But what you're left with is something that does not resemble the way of Jesus because Jesus, when he turns to the scriptures, he turns to the Old Testament. So let's just, Jesus actually comments on this in verse 18. And trust me, we're gonna get to the end. Verse 18, Jesus says this, for truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law, from the Torah, from the teaching of Yahweh until everything is accomplished. So if you grew up around the King James, uh, this is all about the jots and the tittles. This is like, this is the best part. Did nobody grow up around the jots and the tittles? I'm like new to the, ch this is, fan okay, maybe the first teaching I ever heard was uh, by an African-American man, and he talked about jots and tittles, and I thought it was the funniest thing. I was giggling as a college student. In the Anyways, thanks. Uh, Jesus is essentially saying that there will, like, the universe will have to crumble, but by the way, it's not going to. That's how long the law of God is going to be established, until when, until it's all accomplished. And if you're like, I don't know what a jot and a tittle is, just take a gander here. Um, the, the Hebrew alphabet is kind of weird. It's all consonants, 
there's no vowels that are actual letters, so it's just like if you know German, uh, the umlauts, the little dots that are over the letters. Sometimes people who are hip put them over letters that they don't need. Um, here we go. So this is uh, the Hebrew letter bait. Give that a try. Bait. Okay, and here's the Hebrew letter kaf. Kaf, okay. Okay, so what you notice is um, if, you f if you neglect to extend that tiny little thing at the end of the bet, you're going to get a cough. That is your little tittle right there. And you can imagine if there's handwriting that, ha that, that neglects that little line, that little detail, then it could change the whole sense of the word and the, the, the sentence and the paragraph, etc., etc. The, the point is that Jesus affirms the very details of God's word given to the people of God. And what can happen is then that you can pick up this, this statement of saying, okay, well, we actually have to, we have to get down to the original manuscripts and we have to hold firm on a word that like some hold to inerrancy. And if, if we don't hold firm on inerrancy, then the whole thing is a wash. I don't know if that's actually true. I think we can have the trustworthiness of God's word endures and we can trust his faithfulness. And Jesus is, is assuring us here in this moment that he trusts the faithfulness and trustworthiness of the word of God. So much so that he says, if heaven, heaven and earth will not pass away, th this thing is here to stay and more. He's bringing it to its fulfillment because he says, until everything is accomplished. And what does Jesus do is he is accomplishing it. He's bringing it to its completion. And Jesus goes on. He just keeps piling it on. In verse 19, he says, Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do according will be called least. Notice the word play in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus' logic is striking here. So f follow this with me. If Jesus is the one who is bringing the Torah, the law to its climax, and the Torah is revealed in Jesus and it's going to stand, in, stand as true, then following Jesus is like following the Torah. Jesus is like the new teaching, the new law. So hear this logic again. If Jesus is bringing the Torah, the law and the prophets to their climax, to their fulfillment, and the law is revealed in Jesus as true, affirmed down to the very details, then following Jesus is like following the law. It's like, it's, it's stepping into the flow of the one who's fulfilled that reality. But if you set aside the least of these, then it's like setting aside the great move of forgiveness that God has on offer. It's likely that Jesus is picking up on this kind of insider language of the least of the commands and the greatest of the commands. If you look in Deuteronomy, you start to see these. There's one like if you're passing by a bird's nest and you see a mother with the eggs, you can take the eggs but leave the mother and it will go well for you. That's a light command. That's the least of these. There's a great command which has the same, it will go well for you. That's honor your father and mother. 
And it's likely that Jesus is kind of picking up on this, this dynamic that's in the text. He's saying, if you, if you, I want you to honor all of them because they all are God's revealed will for this time until it is accomplished. But now I am accomplishing it. I'm not going to do away with it. I'm actually bringing it to its fulfillment. So what is Jesus doing? He's placing himself at the center of the story. And so we might follow along and not really track the words, but, but the words that Jesus is inviting us into are these new words where he's saying, you are the light of the world. There is a new way to be human, and it is called the way of Jesus. That's going to bring this to fulfillment. So the invitation is quite simple. We'll actually see it in Matthew later on. Jesus is going to say, there's a burden you're carrying, but there's a new way to carry it. It's not heavy. It's actually light. You can take off the weight on your shoulders and you can get a new instrument of carrying it called obedience to Jesus, called the kingdom of heaven. There's a new way to be human and it's the way of Jesus. But what if you set this aside? What if you set aside the great move of forgiveness? Maybe it's helpful to just think about this in modern images and context. So in 1807, there was a work published titled Parts of the Holy Bible Selected for the Use of the Negro Slaves in the British West India Islands. And this was published by British missionaries organized by this missionary organization. It's called the Missionary Society for the Conversion of Negro Slaves in the British West Indies. According to Anthony Schmidt, who's one of the curators of uh, the Museum of the Bible in Washington, D.C., the parts of the Bible, the parts of the Holy Bible, has taken out about 90% of the Old Testament and 50% of the New Testament. The parts about slaves obey your masters, those are left in, but the, the parts in like Galatians 3.28, there's neither slave nor free. Like that, that part, that, that's left out out of fear of an uprising. I think this is what it might look like to set aside the great move of forgiveness on offer in Jesus because Jesus is here not just to restore all things like to, to, and that's not like getting rid of mosquitoes. That's ridiculous. It's no, it's about reconciliation between the creator and creation that we would actually attend to one, one another like brother and sister. And if you have siblings, is there conflict? Yes, what can mitigate against that conflict? Forgiveness. Jesus is inviting us to participate in this move of forgiveness. And when people obstruct that move of forgiveness, he lays into them. Check this out at the end of the gospel according to Matthew. Jesus goes off on the Pharisees who've obstructed the way to forgiveness. He says, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. And the language there is this language of play acting. And it's, it's thought that Jesus is actually taking this term and making it incendiary because this was a common thing. If you were in theater, you would wear a mask. And that was not problematic. That was just a part of your worship in that culture. But Jesus takes this moment and he flips it and he says, you give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, which is a good and holy thing to do. But you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. And then listen to this, you blind guides, you strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. Is it any wonder then that Jesus, when we go back to chapter 5, has these words on offer in verse 20? 
For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. If when you hear verse 20, you register, oh, I need to like be better for Jesus, just press pause. Jesus is, is bringing to bear on humanity a great move of forgiveness. Doing better for Jesus is not what Jesus is interested in, I think. Instead, he's looking at the whole system of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who are making the law an end in itself. And he's saying, this, is, this was always a purpose to move you toward the presence of God. It's like this no loitering sign is here to get you off the curb and get you into life, like to actually move you in a way to be human again. So if you want to participate in a new way of righteousness, of relating to God and neighbor, then perhaps you want to participate in this move of forgiveness on offer in Jesus. You see, I I think that if we choose to receive the way of wisdom on offer in Jesus, it's going to come with conflict. This This is what I mean. If we were all to embrace this way of Jesus... This way of like radical love and generosity and an orientation to our enemies that was frustrating. Like if we were to embrace the way of Jesus, self-giving, generative love, it would be like us collectively making a pact and saying, okay, when we leave Gravitate today, left side of the road. You and me... I'll tell the dart driver, left side of the road, buddy. Or I don't know. I, this, the, the, the point would be it's, it's so upside down and backwards, the way of Jesus. It's, it's tantamount. It's the same as essentially us saying, okay, let us go and start driving on the... And Now, if we lived in the United Kingdom, we would be totally fine. I've never driven in the United Kingdom. Uh, I've never driven on the left side of the road. Has anybody done that, by the way? Is it disorienting? Oh, I don't shift. I just go automatic, baby. Yeah. I guess, so, so I talked to somebody who, who did, not just you, Karen. Um, I talked to Jordan this week, and he said he has driven on the left side of the road, and he said it wasn't hard. I was hopeful that he would say, it's ridiculously hard after you've been driving on the right side your whole life to then drive on the left side. And I said, Jordan, it would be more helpful if you're, for my illustration if it was challenging for you. I think for me, it would be really challenging because the hardest turn to make as if you're driving a vehicle here in the States, is the left-hand turn. If you remember your driver's test, I think I sat there for five minutes waiting for there to be no traffic till I turned left. Just like constantly. That is the most difficult turn. So imagine then entirely reorienting your life to now the most difficult thing is to turn right because there's traffic coming in a new way. This is what it's like to follow Jesus. To take up this radical move of forgiveness is essentially to enter into the left lane and there will be collisions and the illustration breaks down at this point. But this is what we get to remind ourselves of. (music) 